Hello, I'm Alex Ratkeen, a barrister at Ferdinand Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased today to be joined in what I have to say is an absolutely boiling hot shed uh, by Dr. Kevin Arrio. Um, anyone who's ever watched or listened to one of these before will know I don't like introducing the person I'm talking to. I always want them to give the chance to, to bring whoever, the, whichever parts of them they want to bring to the discussion. So, Kevin, over to you. Tell us, tell us a bit about yourself. Right. Thanks, Alex. So, yeah, my name is Kevin Ario. I'm currently a trainee clinical psychologist at East London um, NHS Foundation Trust. And I was also um, a PhD student at the Mental Health and Justice Project. Um, and I was really looking at the, um, I was really looking at the idea of influence and how that sort of pertains to mental capacity. And I looked at that in several different ways. So I looked at that in terms of surveying professionals to see like what they did in um, capacity cases where there were elements of coercion. Um, I also looked at um, court protection cases, which I'll go into, I suppose, in this interview. And I was also seeking to look at it from a more um, experimental psychology lens and see what are the influence what are the ways in which other people can influence our decision-making performance and how might that be relevant in a legal context? So I think I'm right in thinking the last of those was a victim of the pandemic, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Or have you been able to do that, that, that experimental work? So it was a victim of the pandemic, unfortunately, but I will be taking it on um, in my current work um, as a training clinical psychologist. So I'll be doing that in about a year and a half's time with um, participants who have sort of a mild form of dementia and just seeing how they sort of respond to legally relevant tasks. I actually have to say, having having seen some of the stuff you were doing preparatory to this becoming a victim of the pandemic, I really can't wait for that research because I think it's, it's really interesting and really innovative. And just before, as you said, the meat of what we're going to talk about really is, is an article which you led on, which has just appeared in the Medical Law Review. But just just to help us, that 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 first bit you mentioned, the survey, just run us through a couple of you know what what you were looking for and, and anything which really stood out for you um, in terms of the kind of results of that survey. Sure. So this was a survey that I led on alongside my colleague um, Dr. Andrew McWilliams and of course yourself and Dr. Gareth Owen, and we were really just trying to see what professionals were perceiving as the issues the main issues in complex capacity assessments. And I think in terms of the um, project that we're talking about today, I guess one of the main points was that professionals were actually um, perceiving a lot of complexity when undue influence was a factor. So actually like they were reporting moderate concern about undue influence, which is really interesting because undue influence doesn't actually feature in the language of the Mental Capacity Act. And so it was really interesting for us as a bit of a springboard to say, OK, we should look at influence in mental capacity cases and maybe there's a bit of a gap in the guidance of what professionals should be doing in these sort of cases. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll put a link to the to the, the, the work you did kind of writing up that survey um, uh, on the page associated with this chat, because it, it is fascinating and it's really interesting because there's been very little work done on seeing how professionals are grappling with it in a kind of operational mode, as it were. But then kind of leading from that, can you just walk us through the, 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 the this article and what led to the kind of the underpinning work and just sort of get a sense of what you were doing and then we can turn to what you found? 
Sure. So there was a lot of background to the article. I suppose the main purpose was that we wanted to address a bit of a dilemma that came up in the drafting of the Mental Capacity Act. So it, it explains in the article um, the issues that were considered by the Law Commission in 1993 in terms of drafting Mental Capacity Act. They considered in their proposals whether they should actually um, yeah, make further official legislative guidance in terms of um, protecting people who have capacity to make decisions but are also vulnerable to um, the influence of other people and what sort of protective measures could the Mental Capacity Act potentially involve. But those proposals didn't actually make it to the final draft guidance. So when the Mental Capacity um, Act came out, it was one of the main criticisms is that is um, an individualistic way of seeing um, decision-making. And it wasn't ultimately clear what to do in these cases where um, it was reason that influence might be affecting somebody's ability to make decisions. So really we started off from that standpoint um, in terms of the analysis itself, um, it was really just following on from work that had been done previously um, led by Dr. Nula Kane, and that was really looking at capacity rationale. So I'm sure you um, covered this in your previous webinar, but um, so that was very exhaustive in terms of, say, the individualist, um, individualistic aspects of um, capacity rationales. But there was a final theme that was around the sort of relational aspects that yeah. wasn't included in the paper. And so we felt that that was a project um, that could probably stand on its own merit. And that had different um, questions in terms of which legal instruments to use in these cases where there is a mixture of an impairment of mind and brain, but also some um, potentially problematic influence from somebody else. And so just for people who aren't familiar, I mean, because obviously one of the dilemma, one of the issues is that the Mental Capacity Act talks about the need for the inability to understand, retain, use or weigh or be able to communicate the decision being caused by an impairment or disturbance in the functioning of the mind or brain. And as you say, it's that bit where you're trying to work out, well, it looks like this person can't make a decision, but what's going on? Is it the, is it as it were, the cognitive issue, the impairment, or is it something else something else going on and you're completely right in the initial contested capacity work that was very much looking at thinking well how are the courts thinking about using a weighing saying so as you say focusing in on on the kind of the individual's reasoning abilities if you could put it that way but not recognizing there was a whole extra piece of work out there so just sort of help us with and help help people listening to this or watching this with how okay fine so we recognize there's a gap how did you go about leading on it leading on it to, to, to fill it Right, so we really started off from that previous paper that I mentioned, um, the sort of sample that they came up with. But um, because we were looking at influence, um, we also wanted to look at not just court protection cases or court appeal cases from the court protection, but also influence does come up in high court cases that aren't actually under that mental capacity um, lens. So really, we were looking at inherent jurisdiction cases as well, and we wanted to cast our net just very widely. So any sort of case that considered mental capacity um, issues, like contested capacity, essentially, um, we wanted to be looking at that to see where the judge is looking at evidence as to whether influence was affecting capacity. So, yeah, it was very broad brush. Um, we looked at 152 judgments in total in our sample, 
and we whittled this down to 20 judgments in the end and our my our main criteria was really just looking at okay do the does the um published judgment look at whether there's a named influencer um who's been reasoned to be exerting influence on the person's decision making um in terms of the actual methods we use what's called a content analysis which was also used in Nula Kane's paper and has also been used as well in corporate section cases. And um, yeah, what we essentially did was we came up with a coding scheme of the ways in which influence can impact on decision-making capacity um, from the statements that we came up with from that um, sample. And then we coded each of those statements independently. And we actually got really high reliability in terms of the way that we coded it. So in the end, we came up with five main ways in which interpersonal influence could impact on, well, were reason to impact on decision-making capacity in a negative way. So just one thing, before, because I really want to get into the five ways. I think one thing which it's just perhaps worth highlighting, because some people might be thinking, if they've got familiarity with the law, they might be thinking, well, undue influence, haven't there been millions of cases about undue influence? And I think one, and they might be 150 doesn't sound like millions, but I think one of the things is to look at is that a lot of the case law around undue influence has been looking backwards. So in other words, it was, was this person under undue influence at the point when they made this will, say, or they gave some money to somebody? And I think what we were looking at, just, just for people aren't familiar, what we were looking at and, and you were leading on is real-time stuff. In other words, is this person's decision-making about something currently compromised by what's going on in relation to, to an influencer. So just, just in terms of the five, the five things, you know, what, what, what were the kind of five headline ways in which you could see this being tracked out in the judgments? Right, so we came up with a few different sort of, yeah, conceptual ways in which influence could impact on decision-making capacity. So the first was around um, influence restricting P's perspective. And that's really that idea of almost narrowing um, the person's perspective as a re result of the influence. So it makes it more difficult for them to actually make those decisions. Um, the second one was mainly around um, inability to preserve free will and independence. So that um, probably most closely ties in with that idea of undue influence. It's really just the person's like free will is reason to be diminished and therefore they can't make the decision because it's not of their own sort of volition. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of talk as well on that third um, theme around valuing or dependence on a relationship. So that's, potential, um, that's potentially a theme of vulnerability is of course, you can end up being more dependent on others. And in most cases, this is a supportive relationship of autonomy, but is being in that position potentially putting you in a position where um, your autonomy could also be compromised if that relationship changes. Um, the fourth one was around acting on a general uh, suggestibility to influence. This mainly came up in um, sort of learning intellectual di uh, disability cases, is that idea that there were specific moments where the person's, um, where there was a named influencer and the person was deemed to be vulnerable because say, for example, um, of their uh, low IQ, but actually um, 
yeah, there was a bit of a tension between is it because is it because of that specific person exerting influence, or is it because um yeah, they can be vulnerable in several different situations. So a really good example of that actually is a social media case. So um whether or not a person with an intellectual disability, if they go online, is it that they are generally vulnerable? Um, how does that impact on their autonomy, etc.? Um, and then finally, there was um, a theme around whether the person or not was able to accept um, established facts about the relationship. And that's really just thinking about um, potentially that idea of insight. So um, what are the judgments that we make about other people? Um, are we able to take on board facts such as there was a case in which um, the alleged influencer um, had been to prison before? Um, are you really able to register that on board at a very basic level in order to make the decision? And how does that feed into your capacity? So I guess in saying all of this, um, these were the supposed mechanisms of influence that were put forward by um, the parties to the court, essentially. But some of these um, arguments weren't accepted by judges and others were. Yeah, I mean, that's a really, thank you. That's a really excellent um, summary of those five headings. And there's so much to unpick under all of them. Uh, and uh, and uh, please can you, you go away and read the article because of the way in which you unpick it and use the case references and use the quotes to illustrate that. And I think, but one thing I just wanted to really draw out, what was really striking me when you were t talking is, and give us that third one, the idea of the influence might well be what's perceived as a supportive relationship and I think there's something so interesting about the fact that, you know, if you say undue influence, you might automatically think this is bad. You know, there's a malign intent on behalf on the part of the person. And I just sort of wonder if you, your, your thoughts on that situation where, you know, almost the extent to which we how do we know what influence is? How do we know whether it's undue? You know, where where because I mean, that's such a big theme lurking about. And just based on your work on the, on the projects and more generally, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's interesting because like there is such a high threshold in terms of like is something undue influence and it does sort of play into that stereotype of the person who is like having malign intent and like exerting so much coercion that um essentially abuse cases, coercive control, those really clear cut cases, but actually in um these sort of contested capacity cases, it's most likely that um though it might not immediately meet that threshold for that level of safeguarding, but there's still a question of whether or not the person has autonomy in that situation. And I think it really maybe challenges this idea that um, there has to be sort of malign intent or um, in order for there to be, in order for an influence to have like a potentially harmful effect on the person. And especially there was this idea that didn't, um, that sort of cut across the themes of enmeshment and really is it sometimes better for the person to have a slightly um, higher level of independence in order to exercise their capacity? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? And it really gets to the heart of what we think autonomy means. I mean, it really does get to, and that an idea is, you know, is an influence over, is an influence stopping someone that exercising their autonomy just a bad thing in and of itself? Or is it only a bad thing if it starts interfering with someone's autonomy in a way everybody else doesn't like? 
I mean, it's just a huge, I mean, I, I, what I love about the paper, one of the things I really, um, I should say a named author on it, but it's, it's so much your paper. I'm allowed to say one of the things I love about the paper is I think it really starts to bring out into the daylight in a really concrete way, some of these things, which are sometimes talked about in quite an abstract way. And then one of the other things I just wanted you, I really want your take on, because you've been so immersed in this, is you can sort of see in those five headings, there's a sort of flickering backwards and forwards between, as it were, is there a, is there a legitimacy to the idea of a person being a vulnerable person? Or is it not about the person at all? Actually, it's about the situation which is making them vulnerable. Because I know there's a huge literature and a huge set of arguments about whether or not vulnerable is a, even a term we should go near. I just wondered, you know, I mean, I should say the term vulnerable is used in the paper because that is what the High Court talks about when it talks about vulnerable adults for the inherent jurisdiction paper purposes. So the vulnerable is coming from there. But just, just more broadly, your take on that. You know, yeah. is the vulnerability inherent in a person or is it the kind of situation? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And actually, I think it lends back to some of the um, literature that I was looking at in terms of relational autonomy. That's this, um, discussed this at length. So really, that's the feminist literature that's really brought a light to these issues. Um, I'm also thinking as well about my background as a psychologist and how we tend to think about issues. Um in terms of vulnerability itself, I think, yeah, it absolutely can be a result of the situation. And I think that's why it's important to highlight these issues in terms of guidance, because it comes back to the idea of the support principle. Like, can you delay capacity assessment until you've actually removed the influence that you suspect is having a harmful effect on the person? And then can you come to that final determination once you've actually got a picture of what the person's um, decision-making ability is like in and of themselves I think it's a really interesting question and like yeah especially as a psychologist myself like we don't tend quite often to use the term vulnerable so it's very interesting like uh, the language that's used and coming at it from an interdisciplinary lens just like how to try and marry those together and it's really interesting to see there was a book published recently um, by a, a neuropsychologist um, just giving some guidance on mental capacity issues and actually influence does come up and it also makes me think as well about a case where um, family therapy was seen as a way of supporting somebody who um, was suspected to have had um, been under malign influence so I thought that was a really interesting approach and it maybe does come back to the idea that actually it's the situation that is harming somebody's decision-making ability and not necessarily that sort of internal individualistic functioning. And of course, that raises the fascinatingly complicated question of if capacity is time specific and you've got a decision which, as it were, needs to be taken right here, right now, what do you do? Do you imagine the person not in the, let's say, the enmeshed situation, just, just for simplicity? Do you imagine the person outside the enmeshed situation or do you go, well, I can't do that. I've got to take the person as they are now. I mean, it's a, you know, it just brings up that huge, I mean, really uh, complicated issue, which I, at least for my part, I don't know what your view is. I'm not sure we've necessarily got an entirely satisfactory uh, uh, resolution of how one's, how one's supposed to do that. Yeah, no, I agree. And like we've come up with the um, mental capacity guidance following on from all the research in mental health and justice. 
but especially on this issue of what to do when there's influence I think we've been quite tentative because there is such little research in this area but just coming back to the paper again I think that one of the main issues it highlighted is that judges aren't necessarily waiting for that legislative change to clarify what to do when there is influence um, or suspected influence in these mental capacity assessments that actually they're forming their own solutions from the case law and we in the paper go through landmark cases um, like Miss, uh, Mrs A, Mr A and like PC and NC that really just I think tell a story of how um, judges have increasingly brought to light these issues and came up with their own sort of solutions. I think that's I think that's actually incredibly powerful as an idea, the way of looking at it, because obviously the Mental Capacity Act came out of judges creating solutions. At that stage, it was to, you know, we're dealing with a person with learning disability who doesn't appear to be able to consent to medical treatment. What do we do? And then we've got judges creating solutions to I'm not quite sure what the problem is here, but I can't just let this person go. And obviously some of them are willing to possibly expand the boundaries of the Mental Capacity Act, have a broader idea of, of, you know, it's the impairment plus. And then some of them go, I can't do that. I'm now out on my own making up a solution in the name of the inherent jurisdiction. And I think it's, yeah, I think real questions, to me at least, uh, real questions get posed about, you know, do we need, as you said at the beginning or quite early on, do we need to take another run at what the Law Commission were looking at? You know, when they did recognise it's more complicated than just you know, capacity, incapacity, as, you know, real life is more complex. So, Kevin, a, a final, possibly unfair question. If it was up to you, what do you think people should do? You know, you've got the influence situation, you've got the kind of capacity question. I mean, if it was up to you, would you just say, actually, this capacity thing is a complete red herring, it's not helping me? Or do you think the capacity thing is helping, I just need to know how I'm supposed to apply it? Dr. Rio, it's your call, what would you do? Um, I don't feel 100% qualified to answer this, but no, I can... you have been thinking about it for many years, so you were entirely qualified. So I was, I think where my mind casts to is the Men's Capacity Act in Singapore, where that is probably a more collectivistic country, a more a country where sort of like relational support is more sort of embedded into um, just the everyday like understanding of decision making. So actually, I really like how basically in Singapore, they've um, got a very, very similar um, version of their mental capacity acts and um, very similar to ours, but they do actually allow for more consideration of influence when determining that causative nexus of, you know, is there a connection between the impairment and the person's inability to make decisions? So I think for me, um, it seems like a very useful direction of travel would just be like you said, being able to um, consider in a more holistic way what is the situation that's affecting the person's decision-making and trying to be uh, pragmatic around that. And just on another note as well, I've noticed that um, the Draft Mental Capacity Act Code of Practice also mentions um, influence as well and what to do, and they actually seem to advise against using the inherent jurisdiction until the uh, mental capacity question is settled. So I thought, I think it's really interesting just how, um, yeah, how policy and guidance is starting to catch up to this issue of influence. But as we said from, you know, beginning from the survey, these are issues that have been coming up 
ever since the Mental Capacity Act was drafted, but it's really good to shine a light on them now. Brilliant. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Um, as, a, as I say, I can take very little credit for the paper, um, so I can take full credit for all that. Very happy to sign off, and I think it's a, just a fantastic piece of work you led on. Um, and as I say, I'll put a link to it on, on, the, on the website, on the page associated with this. Thank you very much indeed for your time, Kevin. Right. Thanks so much, Alex.